to Lighting the Pipes Noir. My name is Joshua Taylor, and I will be your host for each episode of this podcast, where I will be discussing a work from that elusive to defined genre of cinema, film noir. Faithful listeners of Lighting the Pipes, of which I co-host, will know that I and Scott Powell discuss and dissect the mystery novel. We both love to read, but in terms of background, Scott is more the literary major, and I am the film major. In our second season of Lighting the Pipes, we investigated, pun intended, the works of Raymond Chandler, whose Los Angeles-based detective hero Philip Marlowe represented what I would call the peak in detective fiction. To no one's surprise, several of his stories and that of his predecessors, such as Dashiell Hammett and James N. Kane, and contemporaries like Cornell Woolrich and Mickey Spillane have been adapted to feature film. The Big Sleep, The Maltese Falcon, The Postman Always Rings Twice, Kiss Me Deadly. These films belong to a genre known as film noir. A genre known for low-key lighting, private detectives, gangsters, city corruption, and femme fatales, all in black and white. You get the picture. Now what is film noir exactly? It's rather elusive for us to define, but I'll do my best. The term film noir originates from a French film critic named Nino Frank, one of the many European cinephiles of the era who consumed Hollywood cinema en masse. Some of these, particularly uh, French film critics, became filmmakers themselves. Some of them became film theorists. These film theorists that they would eventually become are primarily responsible for founding the discipline which I have a degree in. But to the point, noir is French for black, so Frank is really calling these films dark cinema. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Even in the age when the Hayes Code, or as it was formerly known, the Motion Picture Production Code, was created to ensure that cinema not need expose vulnerable general audiences to depictions of violence, sex, drugs, excessive drinking, and smoking, Noir pushed the envelope on all those things at a time when the United States was at war with Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan. So while propaganda and patriotism flourished, a series of films produced by multiple studios, adapting from the best of detective fiction, depicted an America that was violent, sensual, morally decadent, with corruption rotting its social institutions. In other words, pure fantasy. And maybe because of the influence of the war on the American psyche, and its preoccupation with it, which is understandable, film noir sort of went under the radar. The Hayes office would examine each film, but at the same time, the filmmakers would ensure that they could push the envelope. Some of the things that America at that time, Hollywood at that time, would not allow. For film historians, or amateur historians like myself, the classic era of film noir runs from the early 1940s to the late 1950s. Now, most scholars consider the first film of this historical period as John Huston's 1941 Warner Brothers classic, The Maltese Falcon. But like the book and film's titular Bird of Prey, the starting point and categorization of a noir is, yes, that word again, elusive. Many films made by Hollywood, particularly Warner Brothers Studios in the 1930s, as well as in France, hold similar aesthetic to film noir. It's just that the Maltese Falcon combined all the influences of what came before to perfect 
the noir aesthetic. And since its debut, Hollywood, knowing they got lightning in a bottle, set about filling more lightning in more bottles. So this brings us to our most recent episode of Lighting the Pipes, where we review Dashiell Hammett's seminal crime fiction work, The Maltese Falcon, the source material for its three adaptations, Houston's being the best and most influential, so it makes sense from a thematic and historical perspective that we start this series with the review of that influential film. Now, the road to producing, filming, and releasing The Maltese Falcon was a long one, and tracing its conception conveniently allows me to discuss the fundamentals of the noir aesthetic, the noir style. The building blocks, the DNA of film noir, are German Expressionism. This was an aesthetic movement in 1920s German cinema, where surrealist set design and camera lighting conveyed the inner psychology of the characters, creating moody, atmospheric pictures that were the blueprint of the horror film. Films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu are the best examples of German Expressionism. Nosferatu was the height of the movement, relying on camera work and lighting to bring the adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula to life. Early films like Caligari were far more surreal. Actually, they painted shadows on the walls of the set to convey this shattered psyche of the character's psychology. The swirling madness within the doom and gloom uh, that everyone was feeling at the time. If you've ever seen some of the designs of Caligari, the set designs in particular, you'll see uh, the shadows, as I said, painted on the walls in very surreal shapes, uh, creepy shapes that crawling across. It sort of reminds you of Tim Burton, a precursor of Tim Burton. And it's no surprise that many of the directors, the cinematographers, the cameramen, the gaffers and foleys and set builders of these German Expressionist films would find themselves in early 1930s Hollywood, particularly at Carl Emil's Universal Studios, where the horror film was fully established, I wouldn't say perfected, but fully established in movies like Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Invisible Man. But compared to the finesse of the filmmaking of the German Expressionist classics, these films appeared in the early sound period, where the camera was no longer versatile, which gave the early sound films the universal horror pictures included a very stagey feel, lots of wide shots. So what does this have to do with noir? The use of light and shadow in film noirs like the Maltese Falcon and those that came after it is the same used in the German Expressionist and Universal Monster films. So the roots of noir is in horror, particularly psychological horror, and the atmosphere of murkiness and uncertainty. This brings us to the second foundation, American crime slash detective literature. We talked about Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler. All we need to know, by the time Hammett published The Maltese Falcon, crime detective fiction had become mainstream. Already we had Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie novels, and of course the pulp magazines where the stories like The Falcon were published. The most famous of these was Black Mask, but it is these short stories and novels that provided the screenplays for the films of the noir period in Hollywood cinema. Then there's something called French poetic realism. In a nutshell, noir-like crime and detective films were being produced in France, much like the social justice gangster films made by Warner Brothers in the 1930s. These films, such as Pepe la Moco, were cynical and gloomy, often with very bleak endings. The Second World War was on the horizon, Nazi Germany was coming to fruition, and the collective consciousness of France could feel it. And they told traditional crime stories in the films, but instead of being straightforward entertainments, they were atmospheric, pensive, 
Film scholars refer to this period of French filmmaking as French poetic realism, as it depicted real-life, gritty stories that waxed philosophical on the violent lives of the characters and the corruption that surrounded them, much like the writers of the detective fiction of this period. But more importantly, it was the innovation of camera technology and sound design that allowed the kind of camera movement that was utilized in the silent era, which was then grossly hampered by earlier sound technology. This is the third foundation of film noir. This was mostly achieved through the development of stronger, more powerful camera lenses that allowed the bulkier cameras to zoom in and focus more clearly. It didn't matter anymore how heavy the camera was. Cranes and hydraulics could be used, motorized dollies as well. These lenses were first utilized in Orson Welles' 1941 masterpiece, Citizen Kane, and provided a depth of field where a proficient camera operator could focus in and out of foreground and background, or combine focus on foreground, middle ground, and background in the same shot. The low-key lighting of German Expressionism and early sound horror films at Universal, that contrast of light and shadow called chiaroscuro, was also applied to vibrant effect in Citizen Kane, creating an atmosphere unlike that ever seen in modern cinema. So there you have it, German Expressionism giving that moody atmospheric horror feel with his low-key lighting, an aesthetic that these German directors, actors, crewmen brought with them as they attempted the American dream in Hollywood or merely fled the rise of fascism in Europe, Detective fiction and French poetic realism threw in to the ring as well because of its narrative and thematic influences, and the final ingredient being that innovation of camera lenses and lighting that could focus in and out with ease to frame a film that had never been done before. These were all key factors in the establishment of film noir. So that, I hope, gives you an inkling of how the genre of film noir came to fruition. Genre is, again, there it is, an elusive term, because even the aesthetics of noir are still influential to this day. It influenced various genres of film, permeating into comic books and graphic novels, science fiction of any text, horror of any text, video games, music videos, its tropes are everywhere. It is hard to classify, but we know it when we see it. The Maltese Falcon was adapted by Warner Brothers three times. The first was an early sound film produced in 1931 and was going to be re-released in 1936, but the newly minted Motion Picture Production Code found the film not appropriate in places and blocked the release. This resulted in the production of another adaptation, Satan Met a Lady, starring Bette Davis and Warren William. But this comedy was a far cry from Dashiell Hamlet's pulp detective thriller. Not surprisingly, it was a flop. So indeed, third time was the charm when it came to adapting the novel. But it wasn't just Lady Luck at play here. It was a masterful screenwriter and producer named John Huston who would make this falcon fly. But let's go back to my outlining of the key influences of film noir, of which I spoke of Universal Pictures horror films and their ties to German Expressionist filmmaking in the 1920s. One of the camera operators for Universal was a man named Arthur Edison, and he used the low-key lighting and unconventional angles he honed at Universal, of which he acquired from the German masters to bring Detective Sam Spade's world to life. But back to John Huston, who spent his youth painting in Paris and then off to Mexico where he took up the pen as a playwright and a writer of short stories. This vicinity to California inevitably brought Huston to Hollywood, where he was employed as a screenwriter, a storied career that saw him nominated for several Academy Awards. But when Warners opted to adapt the Maltese Falcon for a third time, producer Howard Hawks, best known for his screwball comedies like His Girl Friday and Bringing Up Baby, 
had Houston currently contracted to his production company, and Houston had shared with him some directorial aspirations. Hawk suggested that Houston try his hand at the Maltese Falcon. Warner Brothers was intent on giving the Falcon another go. Houston was fresh off High Sierra, which he co-wrote. The film also starred someone named Humphrey Bogart, a known Warner Brothers character actor usually hired as a gangster or a thug and other unscrupulous characters. Bogart wasn't ugly by any means, but he did not have a leading man's face, and High Sierra was the first time he played a tragic villain character. Now, this tragic villain character was a staple of the Warner Brothers social justice films. You know, the ones starring James Cagney, Edward G. Robinson, and Paul Mooney were a gangster protagonist in movies like Little Caesar, Public Enemy, for example would experience an epic rise and violent fall as a warning to all those viewers who would dare aspire to such a lifestyle. I mean, look what happened to John Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde. But it was with High Sierra that people noticed bit player Bogart had greater range than they previously thought. And while Houston and Bogart had already become close friends, Houston knew that Bogart would be perfect for the role of morally ambiguous private detective Sam Spade. Now, Jack Warner, who was head of Warner Brothers Studios, and executive producer Hal Wallace wanted George Raft for the lead role. But Raft had a stipulation in his contract to not star in remakes, and he didn't want to make a picture with an experienced director like Houston. So next on the list was, naturally, Humphrey Bogart. Casting adventurous and femme fatale Bridget O'Shaughnessy was the next step. Out of listing of many leading ladies, including Ingrid Bergman, who actually watched Maltese Falcon multiple times just so that she could find a way to gain chemistry with Humphrey Bogart while she was preparing for Casablanca, was part of a long list of leading ladies, including Olivia de Havilland, Joan Bennett, Geraldine Fitzgerald, Loretta Young. But the studio wanted Geraldine Fitzgerald for the role, and yet she was not available. And this led Houston and a bit of a casting coup to bring in Mary Astor. Now, Astor was a young star of the silent era, who, during the making of Beau Brummel, had a fling with a much older actor, John Barrymore. And she was only 17 at the time, so scandal indeed. She adapted to the sound era and took a few leading roles, but it wasn't until her ex-husband bitterly leaked her diary, which was rife with accounts of her sexual dalliances over the years. And yet, despite all this, Houston wanted Astor for the role. In terms of portraying a woman of moral ambiguity, he definitely nails it with Astor. Astor may have had the stink of scandal on her, but to Houston, she was a worldly experienced woman and actress. And that encapsulated Bridget perfectly. With these castings, Houston was keen on adapting the novel as faithfully as possible. And while it is expected that an adaptation of a novel should be loyal to the text, it is important that the spirit of the story is at least preserved. Houston's screenplay was as meticulous as his casting. The entirety of the dialogue was lifted from the novel, with a few minor exceptions. The character movements, the hardenings of jaw, the narrowing of eyes, things like that, of which Hammett described, that Houston translated into virtual stage directions for his actors. As an artist in his previous life, he drew storyboards of every scene of that screenplay, shot for shot, working in tandem with cinematographer Arthur Edison. There were some things that were left on the page, however. Houston didn't bother with the flit-white sequence, arguably Sam Spade's most sympathetic moment in the story, and the strip search of Bridget would never make it past the Hayes officials. So that left the rest of the casting. 
Peter Lorre, a Slovakian actor who studied acting in Vienna and was widely known for Fritz Lang's masterpiece M, as well as Hitchcock's first go at the man who knew too much, had the right feel to play clearly homosexual henchman Joel Cairo, something that Houston got past the Hayes Code by simply making Cairo a suggestive effeminate type, but clearly between the lines the character was adapted right from the printed page. As for lead antagonist, the larger-than-life, callous, greedy, and yet almost childlike Casper Gutman, Houston had been attending a play and was impressed by a 61-year-old stage actor named Sidney Greenstreet. Greenstreet was auditioned and then cast as Gutman. Lee Patrick was considered for the role of Iva Archer, Miles Archer's wife of whom Spade had an affair with, but instead she was given the role of Effie. With the rest of the cast assembled, including Alicia Cook Jr. as Wilmer, the screenplay planned out to every detail cinematically between Houston and Edson, the Falcon was ready to soar. And just to expand further on the genius of Houston's script for a moment, the film itself was able to be shot scene for scene, chronologically. It's common in productions to this very day to shoot the script out of order as to navigate the ups and downs of production schedules, actors' availability, delays, weather, crew availability, and other factors that can get in the way of such a feat. But the Maltese Falcon was filmed scene by scene, allowing actors to feel the momentum of the narrative as their characters experienced it. Now, Houston placed trust in assistant producer Henry Blanke to ensure executive producer Hal Wallace and Warner Studio head Jack Warner that the Maltese Falcon was delivered on time and on budget. It was shot on the Warner Brothers backlot at Burbank from June 9, 1941 to July 18, 1941. After principal photography was done and the production had already gone into post, a reshoot was made on August 8th, following by one more in September, on the orders of Jack Warner after screening the film. He found the opening of the film too complicated and suggested that it be rewritten and reshot. For this sequence, Arthur Edison was not available, and another director of photography was brought in. Despite this reshoot, as well as one or two suggestions from the Hayes office as others were being ignored, too much excessive drinking and smoking for the hero, Houston's final script was left virtually intact. The film's budget was 375000 US, but it pulled in $1.8 million in its theatrical run. It was praised by critics, even more curmudgeonly ones like Bosley Crowther, and as we discussed, it's considered not just one of the greatest films ever made, but also the first of the historical era of film noir. This is a film that I first experienced at an early age. At the time, I had acquired an affinity for James Bond movies. I have a dear departed grandmother to thank for that. I couldn't be any more than 10 or 11, but the VHS rental cover of Bogart holding the Falcon intrigued me enough, and it was my choice for a movie night. I experienced it again years later in my university film program, picked it up on DVD a few years after that, and added it to the collection. So here I am now actually reviewing it. I won't lie and say I am not challenged by that prospect. It's a seminal film. It's a famous film, one of the cinematographic literary canon. But it is nonetheless a film, and that leaves it vulnerable to some formal analysis, re-critique. And this is why we're here, right? So if you haven't seen The Maltese Falcon, pause this podcast right now and get to it. The review will be waiting for you when you do. Beware, spoilers, proceed with caution. It's fair to say you'll never find a finer example of traditional Hollywood continuity editing. 
There isn't a single wasted frame in the Maltese Falcon. Exterior establishing shots are presented of San Francisco, appearing and dissolving quickly from the skyline, closer and closer with each glimpse until we find ourselves in the Spade and Archer offices, with Bogart at his desk and the Golden Gate Bridge seen in the distance behind a downtown cityscape. This is followed by a cut with Effie, the girl Friday, in a medium shot, bouncing back to Spade and then back to Effie, allowing Astor's femme fatale Bridget to enter the office and approach Spade's desk. She is then offered a seat, takes it, and we move from medium close-ups cutting from Astor to Bogart as they converse. Suddenly, a door opens, interrupting Astor's speaking, or the sound of the door opens, because her eyes revert to the left, and we cut to the door opening as Archer enters the room. This is the language of cinema. This is standard continuity editing. The camera is both patient observer and storyteller for us, the viewer. We come to know every corner of the Spade and Archer offices, of Spade's apartment and the hotel rooms of both Gridget and Gutman. We can see the contrast of light and shadow used throughout. The characters are never completely illuminated. There's always the presence of some sort of shadow, creating tension and suspense. Adolf Deutsch's score offering the only sort of relief, telling us this is how we must feel. But can we trust it? An exchange between Spade and Bridget in her hotel room depicts him from a slightly higher angle. The lower part of his face is in shadow. We can see his face, but the shade around his mouth indicates to us that he is not being up front with Bridget. The low-key lighting allows each bedside lamp, each open window, each hallway light to illuminate the scene, casting shadows as they are wont to go. But make no mistake, these shadows are placed exactly where the director intended. There is a feeling of murkiness and uncertainty throughout the film that gives us no respite. Compound that with the strength of the performances, the sound design, the movements of the camera suddenly zooming in, playing with our viewing of things by presenting one character from a lower angle and another from a higher angle, there is no doubt that the Maltese Falcon is a great technical achievement. The movie can be a masterpiece of continuity editing and cinematography, but it can't stay afloat if the story is weak or the acting is amateurish or if the direction is shoddy. The film adapts, warts and all, the majority of Hammett's original novel. We can marvel how Houston provided the most faithful adapted screenplay that he could, casting the best actors for the roles, but for all this whiz-bang montage and camera wizardry at work, the story must move forward regardless of its loyalty to the text. The reason why The Maltese Falcon excels as a film is how these technical aspects I have mentioned work in tandem with the script to keep the story flowing. There is always a sense of uncertainty, of mystery, in each scene because we, the viewer, are not entirely sure of the motivations of the character. We are taken aback as Sam Spade takes Joel's Cairo's gun and clocks him, or how he suddenly stands up and smashes the drink given to him by Gutman and unleashes a violent tirade followed by a scene of him smiling in the hallway at how much he has deceived the adversaries of his true intentions. We are not entirely sure Spade knows what he is doing, but the writing, particularly the dialogue taken verbatim from Hammett and energized by Houston, only enlivens the performance, giving us the confidence to trust him. The writing twists and turns. Bogart is suddenly followed on the street, the camera revealing Wilmer watching from a doorway as Spade walks by, allowing us to believe he is not aware of his new tale, but as we soon find out, he is very aware and double backs to our delight. It can't be denied that the Maltese Falcon is a MacGuffin, something to drive the story and motivate each character. But whether the Falcon is real or not is only thematically important. 
What's important is its presence drives those who would search for a violent desire to destroy everyone in their path to get it. And Bogart's performance and the writing of that performance, such as him sleeping with his dead partner's wife, gives us a feeling that we can't completely trust Spade, but we are forced to trust him because who else can we trust? In terms of the story's formal construction, it's really a series of conversations in apartments and hotel rooms, and not exactly a great world trek the titular Falcon and its history suggests. It's a story of morally ambiguous individuals squabbling to get a hold of their prize. And when they do finally lay their hands on the prize bird, it's made of lead, a poor facsimile that caused all this death and violence, but Houston successfully conveys the suspected nobility that trust that we had in Spade deep down to come through. Unlike the novel of which it's based, the script and Bogart's performance reveals the conflict within Spade. Yes, he played Bridget to the end and is taken with her, but this does not stop him to ensure her pain for murdering his partner, a man of whom he betrayed by dallying with his wife, but even so, it's his partner. The novel gives the reader a feeling of bros before hoes when he gives Bridget up. But the filmic Sam Spade is not the Luciferian portrait offered by Hammett. He is more in common with Chandler's Philip Marlowe, a sense of justice and honor despite his emotions. We believe in the end Bogart wished to avenge his partner and redeem himself in the part that he played. That's why the added line of the stuff that dreams are made of in regard to the Falcon's lure is uttered so cynically. He has been playing a game with Bridget, with Gutman, Cairo, Polhouse, and Dundee the policeman, only revealing an inherent sense of honor in an imperfect man. The Falcon is elusive, but doing right by your partner isn't. It can be argued that this elusiveness can be wearing for the average audience member. I'm sure if you're playing a drinking game of how many times I word the word elusive, you are probably feeling very wary yourself. In that view, the story could be considered convoluted because the viewer is suffering from emotional whiplash if you're the kind that wishes to know more than the protagonist. The Maltese Falcon can feel somewhat muddled for some viewers as it relies on an unseen object that we really don't know much about until we are told halfway through the film. And Houston's screenplay does not hold the viewer's hand, nor did it intend to. Is this a flaw or is this a strength in terms of the story? That's really up to the viewer to decide. Bogart has this tough guy Mien that offers a perfect mask to Spade's inner workings. But each gesture, each look, every nuance meant in each piece of dialogue is brought to life with that performance. Mary Astor's Bridget is not your typical spider woman or vamp. She offers sex as a means to get a hold on Spade, but her ambition for the Falcon supersedes this placement in the narrative. This trope. She is an adventuress who will do anything for fortune and glory. Aster, as we discussed, is indeed a worldly individual, but I don't think that's why she was cast. I think Houston knew that she could play this part regardless of any scandalous history. And you cannot argue that Aster conveys this. There is nothing over the top about her villainy or the evil actions that she undertakes in the story. It is, seems very naturalistic from the character and the psychological motivation that has been given to her. She makes us believe that Bridget is someone who could be enthralled by an unpredictable figure like Spade, and yet at the same time remain intent on betraying him when necessary. She's a professional, and Astor gives us this sense of sophistication and cunning. And then there's Sidney Greenstreet. He was a find. 
His gutman is larger than life, eloquent in diction, almost avuncular in disposition, and infectious in his enthusiasm for the falcon. But he is able to turn on a dime to reveal his willingness to do whatever is necessary to the point of disinterested callousness. Peter Laurie as Joel Cairo was inspired casting. Laurie is able to shift between annoyingly effeminate yet sophisticated to enraged and vicious, and at the first time of losing his footing, he is irascible as a trapped animal. All the other players, like Lee Patrick as Effie, Barton McLean as Lieutenant Dundee, and Ward Bond as Detective Polehouse, bring Hammett's su supporting roles to vivid life. Bogart and Patrick's chemistry is palpable. You can feel Cook channeling Wilmer's seething rage towards Spade, and the Spade, Dundee, and Polehouse dynamic just adds to the tension already dripping from every frame. So all of this said, here stands my scoring for the Maltese Falcon. This review and other reviews to follow is based on a three-piece scoring system. Plot, performance, and atmosphere. Each of these categories will be reviewed out of five. For the story, which is an analysis of plot, editing, dialogue, and character development, I give the Maltese Falcon 4.5. It is near perfect at times, yet somewhat convoluted, but this is more on the defects of Hammett's novel than it is on Houston's screenplay. However, he chose to be faithful to that text as much as possible, and bringing in these dimensions can create these problems in the storytelling. The story is tight, there is no doubt about it, but there is moments where the plotting aspects of Hammett's tale is felt in the screenplay as well, and I feel that might have been able to maybe pair about 10 minutes from the screenplay uh, just in order to make things a little more taut, but that's my perspective on it anyway. For the performances of which I'm referring to the caliber of acting in the film, I give a well-deserved 5 out of 5. The leads and supporting players were firing on all cylinders. As for the atmosphere, which is sort of an analysis of cinematography, the musical score, and production design, I bestow 5 out of 5 as well. Edison's camera work brings Hammett's world and its characters to life by the mere method of casting beautiful but sinister shadows. Adolf Deutsch's main theme resonates and his use of suspensional strings and piano provide lively cues, our only lighthouse in the murky fog of this narrative. The production design from Spade's office, apartment, the extra-filled backlot sets bringing downtown Frisco, its docks, and the other exterior locales to life are all essential to contributing to the superior quality of this film. So out of a total of 15 points, the Maltese Falcon earns a final score of 14 and a half, a very high mark that was kind of expected given the high grading of the production in terms of screenplay, acting, cinematography, editing, and of course, production design. So it can be argued, at least from this end anyway, that the Maltese Falcon earns its place as the seminal film noir. So that about wraps up the first episode of Lighting the Pipes Noir. With the introduction to film noir and its background out of the way, we can focus all of our time on the films themselves. So I hope you've enjoyed this little sideshow to Lighting the Pipes. I'll be dropping these every now and then between episodes of our main show. And please let us know your thoughts on our Instagram, pipes underscore pod. We would love to hear what you think. But that said, time to close the book on the Maltese Falcon. So until next time, I'm Joshua Taylor, and this is Lighting the Pipes Noir.